Welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. And a very warm welcome to this, the very first edition of Tall Poppies. I'm Brendan O'Shea. As a journalist working internationally for decades, I've been constantly amazed at the number of Australians living outside Australia, high profile or otherwise, who have remarkable careers and what's more, remarkable stories to tell. The variety is vast and includes artists, academics, sportsmen and women, scientists and no doubt many more professions. Well, in this podcast, we'll be meeting these special individuals. We'll talk to them about their work and successes, the place Australia plays in their lives today, and of course, about their experiences of living abroad. And there is also the Tall Poppies website. You'll find it at tall-poppies.com. There you'll be able to drop by and learn more about our guests. Remember, tall-poppies.com. But what about that title, Tall poppies. Well, most Australians would know exactly what the term tall poppy syndrome means, but others may well be left pondering just what the expression is all about. I decided to ask a few of my podcast guests what they made of it and if they thought tall poppy syndrome was quintessentially Australian. Here is conductor Simone Young, choreographer and dancer Rhys Martin and stage director Barry Kosky. Well, I have quite a positive reaction to it, in fact. A certain amount of amusement. I mean, I love the fact that Australians are generally so self-deprecating and we take criticism and negative terminology generally to be compliments. Sort of the ironic that, you know, yes, it's great to be a tall poppy and you'll be celebrated for it, but watch out because you'll get your head sliced off at some point. (laughs) Well, it seemed to bring me back to Australia, the tall poppy syndrome. Is that what you're talking about? Big head? What else is associated with tall poppies? I have to go back into my English past because it's sort of for, for idiomatic terms, but tall poppies is sort of like get your head kind of sorted out. Don't sort of try and be more than anybody else, especially in Australia, basic democratic kind of egalitarian society. I grew up in a, a town called Newcastle where it was uh, very important that nobody really differentiated themselves particularly from the others. And there was on the one hand a kind of feeling of solidarity and we're all the same, but also of a slightly or a large intolerance to anything that could be identified as what we do in in an industrial seaside town and on the east coast of Australia, so surf and play football. (laughs) Ah, yes, every Australian's heard that phrase. I tend to be very slightly, how should I put it, slightly cautious of the phrase. I understand the meaning of it in terms of there is a trait in Australian society that... Uh, there's a sort of I- idea that people should not speak out or achieve beyond a certain level. But that happens in any culture that is a sort of island culture. It happens in the UK a lot, also an island. It happens in Israel, 
which is sort of an island, a sort of psychological island, and it happens in Australia. And I think it's sort of with the fact that if countries where you don't get immediate cross-fertilisation of cultures and countries, as you do in the Americas and as you do in Africa and as you do in Asia and as you do in Europe, it's very contradictory because on one hand people are very proud of success, on the other hand in certain areas it can be very cynical. However, what's interesting in Australia is that there's no tall poppy syndrome in sports. Stage director Barry Kosky there. And we'll hear more from Simone Young and Rhys Martin in future episodes of the Tall Poppies podcast. But we stay now with Barry Kosky, who is indeed my guest in this edition. Melbourne-born Barry is today one of the world's most sought-after stage directors. He went to school at Melbourne Grammar and subsequently studied music at the University of Melbourne, where already in his student days, he was directing stage productions. He was artistic director of Gilgul Theatre Company, which describes itself as Australia's first professional alternative Jewish theatre company. And in 1996, Barry directed one of Australia's most prestigious arts events, the Adelaide Festival. Indeed, Barry Kosky attributes much of his success today to his mentors and the experience that he was able to gain in Australia in the 1980s. I've never, ever felt that I was mistreated, misunderstood, yes. But I had fantastic experience and opportunities. I was mentored by fantastic people and supported by fantastic individuals. And also I had an audience in Australia that um, I think really liked my productions and my work, or still have an audience that likes my productions and my work. I never felt myself as a tall poppy victim at all. I never experienced it personally, although I have seen it in other people. There's a trait of sort of jealous meanness that comes out, not all the time in Australian culture, but that jealous meanness comes out. And it's more to do with a sort of, I think, some distrust or a fear of articulateness that people can't be too clever, people can't be too flamboyant, people can't be too too many ideas. And so I think that happens in literature and I think it happens in politics and I think that happens in other areas of the society. But I didn't leave Australia because I was felt I was being victimised or that I was not getting opportunities. On the contrary, I left actually at sort of the height of my career there. Barry left Australia in the year 2000 and has been living and working internationally ever since. Alongside countless productions in many of Europe's finest opera houses and festivals, he was also co-director of the Vienna Schauspielhaus until 2007. But here in Berlin, Barry Kosky has become a bit of a household name since in 2012 he became the artistic director, intendant as it's called in German, of the city's Kormischer Oper. With his energetic productions of standard repertoire, the likes of Tales of Hoffman, Rigoletto or The Magic Flute, Barry has invigorated the Kormischer Oper. But he's also placed a particular focus on neglected works by Jewish composers of the Weimar era. This has given Berlin audiences the chance to sample, sometimes for the first time in a century, music by Paul Abraham, Emrich Kalman and Oscar Strauss, to name a few. Jede 
But then in summer 2017, Barry Kosky directed his first production at the Bayreuth Festival, one of the world's most prestigious opera events. The festival honours the works of Richard Wagner and is held in the composer's Bavarian hometown, Bayreuth. Now, Richard Wagner is a person who was as controversial during his lifetime as he is today for his anti-Semitic views. He was also Adolf Hitler's favourite composer. So the decision to direct in Bayreuth was not one that Barry Kosky took lightly. And indeed, he was the first Jewish director to work in the festival in its over 140-year history. I mean, it's, it's a little bit weird. You have to think, oh, my God, I'm, you know, Melbourne-born. Uh, Barry is to direct Meister Singers at Bayreuth, the most problematic Wagner pieces to do at Bayreuth because of the history, because it was the only Wagner piece performed by the Nazis there uh, during, the, during the war. That makes it extraordinary. And I really spent six months trying to work out whether I was going to do it or not. But let's go back to the start of Barry Kosky's career. And indeed, one of his earliest and most memorable encounters with opera was in Melbourne in the 1980s when he heard that great Australian singer, Joan Sutherland. It was the time the, the Australian Opera, as it was called then, was, was doing Princess and Palais. Those were the days. Um, <laughs> there are nights in those theatres that have remained sort of burnt in my consciousness. But the Jones said, I saw Traviata, I saw The Merry Widow, I saw um, Dialogue of the Carmelites, I saw that the, when she did The Four Women in Tales of Hoffman and the Lucia, and I can't, I think the Lucia was at the Palais, I don't think it was the Princess, I think it was at the Palais. And, you know... When you're young, of course, and of course at that time I was listening to Callas and I was listening to other singers and I understood what different voices were, but people who never heard Joan Sutherland don't appreciate how large the voice was, the part of the sort of extraordinariness of her. She wasn't a good actress. Her diction was appalling. But there was something about the size and virtuosity of that voice that sort of, that it was like very, very clear, loud glass so it wasn't little and it wasn't voluptuous, but there was incredible... Well, to me, it was like always like sheets of glass being flung out into the auditorium. And it was amazing, the sheer size of the voice and the flexibility of the voice. And, you know, you never understood a word she was saying because it was all vowel sounds. Um, and, you know, but she sort of learnt a few tricks from, you know... Zeffirelli and Copley and all these directors she worked with. She just knew how to do it. And then she got very clever at, you know, costuming and working out. But I must admit, that Lucia, I don't think I've ever seen anything mad on the stage. I mean, it was, you know, she must have been in her 50s. I don't know how old she was. This sort of huge, billowing, white sort of nightgown with sort of blood splattered on, sort of very bad wig. Coming down the creaky 
sort of, you know, staircase of that John Copley production, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything madder in my life. I mean, it was, it was outrageously mad. Um, more mad than any Lucia I've ever seen. With this sort of, you know, over-middle-aged woman playing this Scottish virgin, singing in Italian, amazingly, with this blood spread sort of nighty on, doing very weird sort of melodramatic gestures. It was fantastic. And for a, you know, adolescent, you know, opera fan, it was like you just... It's, it goes into you, you know, you can't get that out of your head. Yeah, indeed, adolescent or profound, because you'd already encountered so much of this much earlier with those rather phenomenal grandparents, Hungarian, Russian. They must have had an incredible influence on you right from the beginning. Yes, in different ways. I mean, my parents saw very early, very early on that I, want, I, was, I was like a sponge. I, I wanted everything. So they took me to everything. They took me to concerts, theatre, symphony concerts, dance, musicals, uh, exhibitions. I mean, everything. And this was from literally from the word go, from when I was sort of five. So I had this sort of classical education of... Um, uh, that was done by my parents and my grandparents. And in particular, my Hungarian grandmother, who I've written about and talk about, of course, a lot, because she really was the seminal influence as an individual. I mean, my parents are not artistic, but they were, they were in a way, like the sort of the, the, the philanthropists. They sponsored the whole thing. <laughs> but my grandmother was the figure that was this living, breathing example of this world, this pre-war assimilated Hungarian Jewish world where she had heard all these famous singers and met these famous composers and conductors and could talk about Goethe and Schiller and all of these names that were, you know, flying out to me, which weren't the names that my fellow students at Melbourne Grammar were, were, <laughs> were getting from their parents and grandparents. So, you know, even though I love Winnie the Pooh and Paddington Bear because, um, you know, I read them voraciously when I was young, you know, I was, you know, hearing stories about from operas and ballets and, and from Goethe and Schiller and other Central European writers. So it was, it, was, it was very, very different. It was a very contradictory education in terms of being in sort of Australia at that time for me because it didn't match my daily life. But what it did do is to ignite my inner life. So all the things she spoke about and did and took me to had an enormous impact on that sort of sponge. So when it, when it eventually came for, to me to start directing and to express myself artistically, you know, that sponge was very thick with a lot of interesting fluid. So long ago, I had a long interview with Daniel Barenboim, that legendary conductor and pianist, and he said to me just as I was about to leave the room, uh, so, you're an Australian. You must be very proud of that Barry Kosky and what he does. <laughs> uh, you're smiling, Barry, yeah? 
You and Daniel Barenboim, of course, have something in common. You're both directors of opera houses here in Berlin. You're both Jewish and you both champion the music of Wagner. Now, you've just returned from the Bayreuth Festival and a very successful production of The Meistersinger, which was historical in lots of different ways. Yet, What's also interesting is that your association with Richard Wagner and the music of Richard Wagner actually started a long time ago, and that was through your Jewish-Hungarian grandmother, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that no one has a problem with the music of Wagner. I mean, he is one of the great geniuses of all time, and he wrote extraordinary music. No one ever doubts that for one second. So it's much easier for conductors to not have to deal with all the other stuff that directors have to deal with in putting on a show because they can, in a way, if they want to, separate themselves from the uh, content of the pieces or the text of the pieces. But my starting point for Wagner was my grandmother, who was a huge Wagner fan. Um, That's pretty unusual, isn't it, for a Hungarian Jew? Yes and no. No, I'd say for an assimilated Jewish European, it's not unusual when you consider that one of the best Wagner conductors of all time was Hermann Levy, mm. who was you know the son of a rabbi and um, who conducted the first performance of Passover. And there's a tradition of extraordinary uh, Jewish Wagner conductors, not just Daniel Barenboim, but also James Levine. Part of the complicated relationship, I think, European assimilated Judaism has with Wagner, um, which is complicated... It was complicated in the 19th century, as we know. A lot of Wagner fans were Jewish, assimilated Jews, even though they knew he was an anti-Semite. The man who produced the touring productions of his work, Angelo Neumann, was Jewish. The two men that's, um, that worked on all the piano reductions of his pieces uh, were, were two young Jewish students, one of whom committed suicide after Wagner died. So it's a complicated relationship. But that was the 19th century. The 20th century, of course, had the Third Reich and all the associations with Wagner. But I've always said that that's all very well and fine. Wagner's not responsible for what Hitler did with the music or the third, how the Third Reich used it. It has never really interested me, Wagner under the Nazis. That's not really interesting. The Merry Widow was Hitler's favourite stage work, so we still play that with no problems. That's not the issue. The issue I find interesting, of course, is to go back further, go back to Luther, go back to the whole 16th century, beginning of, of German Protestantism and the connection uh, between that and anti-Semitism, and then through the 18th and 19th centuries, because I think that that is where a lot of the seeds of the 20th century sprung from. And in the case of me personally, there's no such thing as a Jewish position on Wagner. You know, it's like the non-Jewish position on Wagner. Everyone has their own individual. I'm not speaking for the Jews. I'm not speaking for assimilated diaspora Jews and their position on Wagner. I don't think ever Daniel Barrymore is speaking on behalf of the Jewish people. He's speaking on behalf of himself and his ideas. And he argues that the pieces are not anti-Semitic, that the music can't be anti-Semitic. And I argue, yes, they can. We have spoken about this. We have a different opinion on it. And I think that for me personally, I find Wagner to be a source of enormous attraction and enormous repulsion. And that will never change. That's always going to be the case. But I'm very suspicious of people who completely deify him and adore him. And you can't possibly be the man I think was objectionable. But that's not important for the music. But I say to people always, but he didn't write symphonies. He didn't write string quartets. He didn't write piano concerto. He wrote narrative with text. They're operas. Half of it is text. And look inside the text. Look inside his other writings. And then you begin to see all the problems. But it's 
It's a minefield of subjective personal opinion, really. I don't have a problem with Wagner being played. I don't have a va- problem with, 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 with separating Wagner and the Third Reich, because I think we should. Um, it says he's not responsible for it. But um, you have to be honest about what the subject and the extraordinarily complicated ideas about race and identity, and to deny that is, I think, to coat the pieces in a lacquer that, uh, that is, doesn't deserve. Mm. Yet you mentioned there, of course, hardcore Wagnerites. There's only one place in the world where you're going to find the biggest population of them, and that is Bayreuth in summer in Germany. Both you and I know that, Angela Merkel and all the other people that attend those premieres, including your own this year. Uh, How was it for you then, actually, this experience at Bayreuth? Did you know Bayreuth well before you actually went there to direct this year? Um, I've been a few times as an audience uh, member to Bayreuth, and I never thought of directing there because I'd thought my Wagner shows where I directed eight productions of Wagner and thought it all finished and I had other priorities here in the Kumbhuch Opera and in my other productions in other houses in the world and when Katharina Wagner asked me and gave me time to think about it and I decided to do it and I'm very glad that I did it. It was a very interesting journey. It was three years and I was very lucky in the end to have firstly a phenomenal cast. We had a a fantastic eight weeks' time in, in Bayreuth. It was really fantastic, fantastic chorus. And the conductor, Philip Jordan, who was the um, music director of the Paris Opera, who I also had a great time with, and was, so we were very simpatico in how we looked at the piece and how we wanted the piece. And So artistically, I had a wonderful time. And at Bayreuth, because you're rehearsing sort of behind closed doors and in this little town, you actually can do a lot of very, very concentrated work, even more than in Berlin. So you you really are left alone. So it's only in the last week when suddenly you realise that the place is just like sort of streaming with security police and secret police because Angela Merkel is coming in a few days, that you begin to think, oh, and the television cameras start arriving. And then you realise it's being beamed into 100 cinemas across Europe and all of this sort of stuff. And you can separate yourself. I went through it in a, in a very very constructive, creative way was to me, uh, I don't like opening nights anywhere, Bayreuth, Berlin or Sydney. I've never liked opening nights, but it wasn't as stressful as I thought it would be and it wasn't as terrifying as I thought it would be. And it was, I'm very, very glad I did it because I, I, I really sort of put my hand in the fire and have to really confront a number of fears I have about Wagner. I was very, very happy to do it. I came through it, I survived. It's interesting, the reaction. People have got it. People have misunderstood it. People have interpreted things very differently from what I thought they would, but that's exactly what I want, so I couldn't be happier. Pretty much like any, any production, though, I think, isn't it? If people are talking about it, one has to be happy. You've come back, of course, you've left Wagner in an incredibly lavish, huge production, and you've come to Debussy, and you've presented here Debussy's opera, here at the Cormish Opera, in a very, very almost minimalistic way. That must have been a very brave decision to do that or what guided you in that respect in in finding your sort of getting back to to very very simple things where we just see people on stage moving from right to left sometimes left to right people of course see a successful large production they think that that's what you do all the time they forget it was deliberate to do um, Pelias straight after my sister's I needed a piece that was um, not large and not long it was deliberately planned where it was. That was a very conscious decision to do that then. It's, it's what the piece needed. I mean, I, I decide how a piece should look and feel and be through work with my team, my designers and performers, but each production, each decision is made on what the music and the text 
do for me. So that's what it did for me. I mean, I could have easily designed, if Peleus had spoken to me in a different way, it could have been very, very different, but it just, that's what came out. Let's jump back to an even earlier chapter, and of course, we, we, while we're there and we're going backwards, let's go back to the 1920s and 30s. And something that, of course, you've been responsible for here, uh, along with your colleagues, is introducing back to Berlin a number of major pieces that disappeared along the way, the work of Paul Abraham, Karlmann, Strauss, all these composers that all of a sudden Berliners have been able to discover all these wonderful things that were happening in the 30s and disappeared then, of course, in 33. How did it come about that, that an Australian is able to come in, dig these things out of the cupboard and say, hello Germans, look, this stuff's fabulous. I've got it on the stage, I want you to see it, I want you to look at it. Was it easy to get people to take notice of you to do these sort of things? Yes, it actually was, um, because you know once you confront people with the with the marvelousness of the pieces, then there is no question. But you know, I, I, I think I have to say to your listeners, which is one very important thing: the, the our house was built in 1988, which means that it had a very particular history, and it was in the 90s, 20s, and 30s the leading German opera house for uh, review and operetta, and all the great stars sang here. Uh, Richard Tauber and Fritzi Massari and Gitta Alper, all the great operetta composers conducted um, in the Komische Oper. It was called the Metropol Theater uh, at this time. Um, 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 Leha, Kalman, Abraham. And it was very much yeah, an absolute beacon, a new form of operetta that had taken the Viennese tradition, which was stale by that stage, and absolutely bombarded it with jazz and Jewishness and cosmopolitanism. And then for sort of 20 years, you had this extraordinary explosion. What happened was that a lot of these pieces were premiered on the eve of the Third Reich, which means that they never gained a foothold in the repertoire because they were not allowed to be performed. So they were big successes for a month or two months or maybe a year, and they never got a foothold which they would have got in the repertoire that then people, because the Nazis banned um, the work of Jewish composers and Jewish librettists and Jewish artists, so they all but disappeared. What happened was that after the, th after the Second World War, a lot of these pieces, not all of them, but a lot of the pieces were rediscovered and they went through a second form of Aryanization in that the um, conductors and the singers took out most of the jazz elements and made it sort of like light opera, so harmless, oversung by very large voices. And the recordings in the 50s and 60s, where most of the older people grew up on, are so false and so appalling that you just shake your head in, in disbelief that that could be how these composers are remembered. So in the last 10 years, there's been a little bit of a mumbling amongst operetta people about new recordings or, sorry, new versions and whatever. And the difficulty we face is that in a lot of these cases, there was not a full orchestra score. So what happened was that either a special version was done for the orchestra and then, you know, for that 
performance or the, that series of performance, or a lot of improvisation was going on from the piano score on the night. So we don't have, in a lot of cases, the full orchestral score. So they have to be redone or reworked or, or discovered again if they're there. And, and what happened was that I came along and I realised, you know what? What was going on in this theatre? What were the? It was very simple, actually. I said, "Well, what were the big pieces that were being done in this theatre, and what were the big pieces being done in Berlin? That, you know, what were the famous pieces? I mean, that's what you start with." And then we discovered that most of them had never been done in Berlin since their premiere in the twenties and thirties. So I'm sort of gobsmacked. I'm thinking, "I don't get this." And the answer it's it's a number of answers. Firstly, the city was split, you know, and the East Germans were not interested in op- Jewish operetta at all. Secondly, there's an element of guilt about the whole thing because, you know, 90% of these composers and librettists were Jews. So, you know, there's an element of suddenly being confronted with, you know, works of genius that, you know, have not been heard since their premiere and what that does to, to people. And thirdly, I think it was just sort of, you know, absolute, utter, you know, laziness from people not thinking, you know, maybe we should have a look in the libraries and see what was being done. Um, and of course, for me, it was like, well, that's what the obvious thing to do. And so with my team, we started researching and it wasn't very difficult to find what the big successes were. And then we started looking at them and then we got amazed by how great they were. And, um, and we've done very particular versions of them in the highest quality with the most fantastic performers and the public have gone completely nuts about them. And, you know, everyone says to me, it could only have been a non-German that could have actually come along and said, hello, uh, look what, what, what you've got here, because that's the way these things happen often, that you need an outside pair of eyes to come in and, and go, hello, you know, you don't have to go anywhere else to look at what's here, this is Berlin, you know, mm. let's celebrate it. You said that there were some recordings made then in the 50s and 60s where all the jazz elements were sort of cut out of it. What could anybody have against jazz elements in operetta, or was it just this old thing of dividing serious music with... Unterhaltung or entertainment music as the Germans used to. Yes, it's that. But also I just think it's like, I mean, if it's the 50s and the 60s. So, you know, this jazz from the Berlin Jazz, it's very um, dirty jazz. I mean, it really is. And if you listen to the recordings of the great singers in the 20s and 30s, it's dirty, sexy stuff. So in the 50s, you can understand it's a sanitised the 1950s. So you don't want dirt and sex and grunge in, in your operetta, you know, so you take it out. You make it impotent and you take the melodies, all of which, not, a lot of which are fabulous, and you reorchestrate it for big soupy orchestras like that to make it sound as Viennese as possible mm. and less Berlin. So, you know, it, it, and all the, all the double entendres were taken out. I mean, a lot of the dialogue um, uh, and texts for these songs are outrageous, even by our standards today, that you thought, my, I mean, they're not just double entendres, it's like, it's, it's really R-rated stuff that was being sung on the operetta stages. And the operetta stages from Offenbach's time in Paris, for some reason, were a place where you could actually do that. You, weren't, you couldn't do it in, this, in the legitimate theatre. You certainly could do it in the opera house. But in the operetta stages, you could get away with it. And that's, of course, what makes it fascinating. <laughs>
observation from here and, and, and what's coming out of Australia that we have a lot of good singers, we have a lot of composers these days writing interesting things that are in demand. A lot of people are interested in what's happening in the Australian new music scene. What do you see and what's changed perhaps over the years? Well, it's very, very hard for me to really be detailed about it because I haven't lived in Australia for just over 17 years. So it would be wrong of me to give a, you know, breathtakingly articulate analysis of the Australian uh, new music landscape when I haven't been there. I don't know why we're always surprised when there are sort of talented people in Australia who do very well, whether it's in dance or whether it's in music or whatever. We have an extraordinary high level. For a country that's only 25 million people, there's an extraordinary level, high level of creativity. You go to most top orchestras in the world and there's invariably one or two Aussies in the orchestra, as there are in the mm. Berlin Philharmonic or the Staatskapelle or the London Symphony Orchestra. You go to most major ballet companies around the world, there's invariably some Aussie dancers in there. We breed very, very good dancers. I think dance is a much more authentic Australian expression performing arts expression than acting is in a way. I think that we do dance very, very well. And I think we do singing very well. And I think we do musicians very well. But I think that probably technology and communication has enabled people from all around the world to find out much quicker. Now you can just download something or you can put something on, on YouTube or send something very quickly. People can have their own websites, people have their own way of communicating their work, which I think has revolutionised the way. I mean, 20 years ago, this wasn't the case. So when you're talking about a very new thing here where people can actually self-promote, and I don't mean in a sort of marketing way, I mean literally just sending their work out into the world which is a good thing. So I think probably that that's enabled a lot of people to have their work seen or heard. But I think also that Australia suffers a little bit from the European consciousness from uh, the cliches. Most Germans tend to think of Australia as a fantastic tourist destination still. They sort of know that there's things happening there. But the idea of, they would, I think they're quite surprised when you tell them about the opera and theatre and the music and they're quite surprised. You can tell them that it's actually been going on for 200 years. It's not something that's been going on for 20 years. I think that there's a sort of lack of interest. There's a disinterest, quite honestly, I've seen. People sort of aren't really interested in Australia. And that's not because they've made a conscious decision not to be interested. It's just because it doesn't enter onto the radar in the same way. And that, that can change, of course, with a particular piece or an artist if they hear about it. But if, you, if, if the associations people have with Australia in Germany or the German-speaking world are landscape, 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 holiday destination, holiday destination, holiday destination, good coffee, that's what I hear. <laughs> They, they're always going, oh, my God, the coffee's so fabulous. <laughs> Which is a little bit depressing when people come back and tell you that the landscape's beautiful, the food's fantastic, and uh, the coffee's good. And you go, Anything else? But, listen, I think that on that level of internationalism, I think you have to be very careful because I think always the best work, no matter what it is, is created from a place in a context. Um, I think the best work is still created as an artist's expression to a place or to, to a very, something very specific. So I think Australians should 
artists should just keep on being Australian artists. I mean, I know that I'm, I don't define, I don't wear my Australian artist badge, but I know that one of the reasons why I've been successful and uh, can achieve, uh, have achieved what I've done is because that my Australianness makes my productions different from, from a European directors. Has there ever been a time when it's been a negative thing for you to be an Australian? Um, yeah, it was, but the negativity came from me. The, the problems I had with Australia um, were about me uh, and my negativity. I mean, you know, a place can't be negative. It has to be the people that are negative. So I was very frustrated, and I think I took that frustration out in different directions. But that's all being worked through now. I'm not a very negative person. I can be frustrated and I can be annoyed and I can be angry. I can't even be angry. I think it's like just passionate. But I'm not a negative person and I'm not a destructive person. And when it comes down to it, you know, it's not brain surgery what we're doing. So it doesn't save people's lives. So you have to put a context. It's very important to me, of course. It's what I do, and I'm privileged enough to be able to do with it. But there are millions of people around the world who are doing more extraordinary things than directing opera. Mm. Um, and the world won't well, stop turning if opera uh, isn't played. So you have to understand a context and uh, a hierarchy here. And, and while I, it's the only thing that I really think I can do fantastically is, is to be in a rehearsal room and create, and I enjoy it, and I love it, I think... In Australia, when I was living and working there uh, until about the year 2000, I felt, yeah, misunderstood and frustration about not being understood and not somehow fitting in and not finding a context to fit in, which then got solved, particularly by being here in Berlin. Both of us are the descendants of refugees. My grandparents, of course, left Ireland to get away from war and from the famine and all sorts of things. There's a whole lot of debate going on at the moment about refugees. This past of yours has played such an important role in you coming back here and, and doing all the things that you're doing, right? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a very complicated situation. I don't think you can, you can discuss it in a few sentences and I don't think it's black and white. I think it's incredibly complicated and we are living in it so we can't, like we, we can't make large statements about it because thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of refugees are arriving from Syria and Afghanistan and North Africa and every day in Germany. And I try with my German friends to talk about the fact that the first thing I think you always have to do is you have to find an empathy. You have to understand what it's like. Uh, take away the fear of, oh, my God, they're all terrorists and all that nonsense and, oh, my God, they're coming to take over Europe and all that rubbish. Um, because um, they're not. Uh, they are mostly victims of um, appalling uh, war, uh, of people who have lost their homes and their houses or their countries. And, you know, I would say people would feel very differently, I think, if they weren't mostly Muslims. I think if they were Jews with, um, you know, record collections of Schubert, chamber music and copies of Goethe and Schiller and, um, uh, you know, had violin cases on them, they'd probably think very differently. Or, the, you know, they carried sort of, you know, uh, of the, copies of the New Testament and were persecuted Christian communities. I think people would feel very differently. So I think it's a very complicated thing going on here. But I think it's very important, firstly, to realise these are human beings. They're not refugees, you know. It's, you know, they've got names. They come from villages. They come from places, you know. And, and I I think the Jews 
should be the first people to feel sympathy and empathy um, with the refugees coming from Syria um, and, and other countries because uh, there's no difference between what these people escaping and leaving and what you know Jews who left pogroms or left uh, countries of Europe uh, through persecution in the 19th 20th century there's no difference religious persecution is religious persecution and um, and sexual persecution and cultural persecution is the same thing it can have different names um, at this stage I think uh, you know Merkel and the German people are to be admired enormously I think that uh, people can be very cynical and go yes well of course you know well yes they're doing it because they have to because of the history of Germany they don't have to I think that I think the feeling that I've seen with a lot of everyday Germans and what the people is that not because they feel they have a duty to what they did in the 20th century but it's just a sort of you know a menschlicher um, a human uh, sympathy and empathy for people in in need uh, and you know you always just have to picture what would it be like if I was in this situation would you know what would it be like if I had to trudge through those countries and what if I arrived in a country that I didn't speak the language or whatever what would that be like for me and most white middle-class Europeans don't know what that's like and they're now being confronted with that so I, I have no words of wisdom because you know there are much wiser people who can talk about this than me but I think it's an extraordinary thing it's 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 scary and terrifying on one hand but the reaction to a lot of what I see in Germany is is very heartening and, and quite moving. Barry Kosky, you're a very busy man. You have a lot ahead of you in the next while. Is there a time when you're not thinking about opera? You say you're basically busy with it 90% of your life. Is this still the case? Yeah, I'm sort of obsessive. I don't do things by halves and I don't get enough sleep, as much sleep as I could, but I don't, I, I really, the blurring of private and public life is very strong in such a world where you're also not just directing, you're running a house with 420 people. So. It's fine. I mean, this chapter of my life is about doing this, you know. I, I don't want to be doing this when I'm 70. I don't think physically and emotionally you can do it. You can do it now. I can do 16-hour days uh, for this part of my life, but not forever. So uh, it's important to enjoy it as much as possible. But I think if you enjoy it, then it's the... And, and the adrenaline comes through joy about working and joy about working with people, then you don't seem to get as exhausted... As, as you do if you don't like what you're doing. Opera and theatre director Barry Kosky there. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about the Tall Poppies series, then drop by our website. You'll find it at tall-poppies.com or send us an email to info at tall-poppies.com Sound engineer Thanos Karakantas helped put together this episode, which was produced here in Berlin and made possible through the support of the Australian Embassy in Berlin. I'm Brendan O'Shea. It was nice to have you with me today and I look forward to welcoming you again very soon. Goodbye.